WMNF and Living Mirror Playback Theater will host a monthly community talkback and improv show live here in the WMNF studios, 7 p.m. on the fourth Friday of every month. The event will be based on our monthly mission calendar, covering topics such as economic justice, environmental issues, and more. We invite community activists and interested listeners to come and share their thoughts and experiences. Then Living Mirror will play back those stories using improv techniques. It'll be a compelling evening of community sharing and improv theater, but space in our studio is limited. So go online to wmf.org backslash events to reserve your seat. You are tuned to WMNF Radio 88.5 FM. This is the public affairs program called Community Speaks. And I'm your host, Patro Mobili. And continuing our talk for this Black History Month, I want to continue learning the names, learning their names of those who were enslaved in this country and those who were warriors in this country for civil rights. And we're going to continue that today as I have been delving into my personal history on this past Friday night here at WMNF. I did attend the Living Mirror Theater, Playback Theater, and uh, we were celebrating Black History Month. And uh, I was very gratified that I was invited and I was able to tell part of my family's story. And I want to continue that today as we put it in the larger context of the civil rights movement this time talking about the civil disobedience protest called the wait-in the beach wait-in and it's one of the things that you know touched my life my family's life in Biloxi Mississippi but Biloxi had a beach wait-in during the civil rights movement and so did two Florida cities and we'll listen to some documentary a short documentary about the impact that wait-ins had on the civil rights movement, including right here in Florida. So keep it tuned for that. And of course, your telephone calls and all the latest news and his, uh, history, but especially what is happening globally. And, you know, one wonders, is the United States still a reliable ally on this globe in terms of global security? And we are seeing that being tested by Russia right now. And Russia is probably going to be seeing some days of reckoning since Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia's opposition, main opposition has been murdered in prison. And his mother has been trying to find his body. The Russian authorities have not even released the man's body to his family. And his wife has continued, has vowed to continue his, his protests and continue his fight on the con- on, in the country of Russia. And so what do we have to offer? How can we impact the situation? We know Russia is at war with Ukraine ever since it has lost, lost its vassal and Ukraine's former president. And when they overthrew him in 2014, and uh, as a result, Russia decided to punish Ukraine by taking back Crimea, And that gave Russia 
you know, access to the Black Sea and give, gave it an opportunity to launch a war, an invasion, seven years later on Ukraine and continue to try to chip away at the country in hopes of making it a vassal state again to Russia or make it disappear altogether. And this is where we are facing as a globe right now. And the question has become, is the United States still a viable uh, ally on the globe? But getting back to the Black History Month celebration, especially as we looked at the impact that weigh-ins had, I was looking at my family, some family documents that I had, and on my mother's death certificate, there's a doctor's name, a doctor named Gilbert Mason, and he was one of the main architects of the protest movement in Biloxi, Mississippi, in 1959, the 1959 first beach weighed in. His family, he took his family to the beach and the police came and told him to leave because this was a part of the beach that black people were not allowed to be on. And similarly, in places like Miami, we've had leaders like Eula Davis who inspired beach weighed-ins and uh, those weighed-ins inspired more civil rights actions across the country, but it is a little known piece of history that's very rarely talked about and it helped lead to greater desegregation in this country. We also saw a beach weighed in, a major beach weighed in in St. Augustine, Florida and uh, the on June 18, 1964 protesters attempted to desegregate a whites only pool at the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine where earlier 16 praying rabbis had been arrested along with Martin Luther King Jr. a week prior. And it outraged, you know, the hotel owner dumped acid into the water to force the protesters to leave. That was in St. Augustine, Florida in 1964. They were eventually dragged out of the pool by police officers and sent to jail. And so just in honor of the beach weigh-ins that we have seen happen uh, during the civil rights movement, we when we think of the most iconic moments of the U.S. civil rights movement, we might imagine bus boycotts and lunch counter sit-ins, such as what happened even here in Tampa, or even the March on Washington. But most of us don't think of the protests at beaches and pools, and it was a major flashpoint in this country that we all take for granted these days. Uh, so let's take a listen to a short documentary. The forgotten wait-ins that transformed the United States. Here on Community Speaks, as you go to your telephone lines, go to your telephones and call us. Irene stands ready to take your telephone calls. Maybe we could talk about how you fared during the Civil Rights Movement. Were you in part of a part of any protest movement or even a beach wait-in? But let's take a listen to the forgotten wait-ins that transformed the United States. When you imagine the iconic moments of the Civil Rights Movement, What do you see? Maybe the march from Selma to Montgomery, lunch counter sit-ins, or bus boycotts across the country. But what about this? Or this? What happened in the waters of St. Augustine, Florida, was one of the most critical campaigns in the movement to desegregate the U.S. I still have an eerie feeling when I'm in St. Augustine. They did not like that idea of sharing water. The idea that something that touched us is going to touch them. 
American beaches and pools have long been flashpoints of racial conflict in the U.S. Historically, many cities prohibited Black people from stepping into public waters. Leisure is primarily a tool of capitalism. Leisure is also a tool of white supremacy, and it articulates power in society in a certain way, who has it, um, who does not, who has the right to wield it, and oftentimes this plays out in public spaces. In the North and South, white people fiercely oppose the integration of these spaces. In some cases, separate pools and beaches for Black Americans were established, but they were often small, far away, and dangerous. In New Orleans, for example, the city's designated Black Beach was an area grossly polluted with sewage from nearby fishing camps. That unequal access to recreation is how Wadens were born. Wadens were a spin on the nonviolent lunch counter sit-ins that spread quickly across the country in the 1950s and 60s. But instead of demanding access to businesses, wading into beaches and pools demanded access to leisure. On one hand, it's to pronounce a sense of you see us um, and you must sort of deal with us when you see us. The other aspect or end of a, of a wade-in is to um, invoke some sense of reaction. So since you're unwanted either by law or by social behaviors, people are going to react to your presence. Beaches became an important site for civil disobedience campaigns in the 1950s and early 60s. From the shores of Biloxi to Chicago to Fort Lauderdale, protesters gathered to demand equal access to city waters. By the time wade-ins were organized in St. Augustine, a local movement to end racial discrimination was already making headlines. Soon, the campaign to desegregate these waters became the tipping point in a campaign to desegregate the entire nation. The movement in St. Augustine started with a local dentist and NAACP Youth Council advisor named Robert Haling. Beginning in 1963, Haling mobilized youth in St. Augustine to take part in civil rights sit-ins, marches, and boycotts. I feel it is incumbent upon the city officials to make St. Augustine a glaring example of democracy at work. As the demonstrations picked up, so did violence against them. Hundreds of protesters were beaten and jailed. Four teenagers who conducted a sit-in were ripped from their families and sent to reform school. Wow, this is... You are listening to Community Speaks here on WMNF Radio 88.5, talking about how the beach wade-ins impacted the civil rights movement. A targeted shooting of Haling's home narrowly missed his pregnant wife and killed his dog. So many houses were um, shot into. We knew that anytime we had lights on in the house at night, we were running the risk of our house being firebombed. So my brother and I still had to keep up with our studies. When darkness came, we would take turns going into that closet, closing the door to study. And we knew if we did not go into that particular area to study, we were going to either be shot or the house was going to be burned down. The tempo of violence increased rapidly in St. Augustine. The Klan paraded in the streets, unmindful of the rain. Ku Klux Klan rallies ramped up too. 
At one rally, Haling and three other activists were captured and brutally beaten. Later, Haling was the one convicted for assaulting the Klansmen after five minutes of deliberation by an all-white jury. He was later forced to resign as an aide to the NAACP after a grand jury accused him and other activists of being militant. Haling and the other activists needed a new plan and new allies. Haling reached out to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, a civil rights organization established by Martin Luther King Jr. At the time, King's main focus was to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Among other measures, the bill aimed to desegregate public places. But in the spring of 64, the bill had been held up by the Senate, stuck in a record-long filibuster. King knew heightened tensions back in St. Augustine made it a segregated superbomb and believed high-profile acts of civil disobedience, like the ones Haling organized, could be the push needed to get the Civil Rights Act passed. King and several SCLC leaders shifted focus to St. Augustine and began a series of demonstrations that spring. With the SCLC's help, Haling's movement gained organizers, a financial boost, and high-profile supporters. Jackie Robinson, a black baseball star who pioneered integration of the sport, came to a St. Augustine rally. And Mary Peabody, the 72-year-old mother of the governor of Massachusetts, was jailed after a St. Augustine sit-in, which put the movement in national and international newspapers. Then, in a demonstration on June 11, 1964, King attempted to enter the restaurant at the Monson Motor Lodge, a St. Augustine hotel owned by this man, James Brock. King and 17 others were barred from entering and arrested. A week later, protesters shifted their focus to the swimming pool at the Monson Motor Lodge. By June 18th, two white protesters checked into the hotel. Five black demonstrators were to be their guests in the pool that day. They drove up to the hotel, but they knew they couldn't go in the front door. So they found a way in through the hedges around the pool. As the group waded into the Monson swimming pool, other organizers, including a group of 16 rabbis invited by King, formed a prayer circle around the Monson to join in the civil rights demonstration. With the rabbis outside, King marching down the street with others, and the wait-in at the pool, the demonstration was designed to grab attention. At first, James Brock, the hotel owner, tried to use a cleaning pole to get the swimmers out. But when that didn't work, Brock tried something else. He came out with a bottle of hydrochloric acid, a corrosive pool cleaning chemical, and threw the acid toward the protesters in the pool to drive them out. Mimi Jones, one of the protesters in the pool that day, recalled her experience in a 2017 interview. And all of a sudden, I, the water in front of my face started to bubble up like volcanic, like a volcanic eruption. I could barely breathe. Uh, it was entering my nose and my eyes. It was just very frightening. 
terrified because I really didn't see him coming. Soon after, a fully clothed police officer jumped into the pool to arrest us, to usher us out of the pool, and there were other policemen there waiting for us and carted us off to jail. The goal of the wait-in was to make the new... You're listening to Community Speaks here on WMNF Radio 88.5 FM as we recall the beach wait-ins and the pool protests during the civil rights movement. Our old foreign policy and everything else go to hell over this. Yesterday in the swimming pool in St. Augustine, I started pouring acid in the pool. The very next day, after a 60-day filibuster, the U.S. Senate passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, making way for it to get signed into law by the president. As the nation waited for the bill to get signed, the St. Augustine wait-ins continued on the beaches. Day after day, dozens of black and white demonstrators showed up to the shore and were met with brutality from white supremacists. We went to St. Augustine Beach, and then all of a sudden, they started hitting us and just punching anybody who got in the way. And I was one of the ones who was punched. Um, My nose was broken. The violence peaked on June 25th, when 75 people peacefully entered the water. Highway patrol was sent in to keep the peace, but violence quickly broke out, and they arrested both black and white demonstrators. The speed at which the action develops and the need for officers to pursue the attackers. The demonstrations continued. The um, fighting continued. The um, bullying continued. And it wasn't just about us and integrating that beach. We knew, we knew about the bigger picture. Later that night, hundreds of white supremacists rallied in St. Augustine and attacked civil rights protesters on a march. The clash led to 19 black people being hospitalized, with many more injured. On the night of June 25th, 1964, the fuse burned down and the racial bomb exploded. But they tell me that I don't even have the right to fight to protect the white race. A week later, on July 2nd, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed into law. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson to back what he calls a turning point in history. This moment was monumental, but in the years that followed, wait-ins continued. Cities used different strategies to keep their hold on segregation. For public beaches and pools, that meant many whites-only signs were simply replaced with private club signs and high fees to enter. And as white people started fleeing cities for the suburbs, local governments neglected many urban pools and eventually shut them down. As for St. Augustine, the passing of the Civil Rights Act didn't change the minds of white residents there either. In the years that followed, Dr. Haling left St. Augustine. He could no longer make a living in the city or feel safe there. St. Augustine is still roughly 
the St. Augustine that I remember from the 60s. U.S. beaches and pools remain battlegrounds today. In Pennsylvania, black and brown children were kicked out of their rented pool space because management feared it could change the complexion of the private club. In Texas, white residents called the police on black teens trying to enjoy the neighborhood pool. And in North Carolina, a white hotel employee called the police on a black family using the pool during their stay. All of what happened in the 60s, it's, you, know, you see some of it come back. It's like deja vu. I asked you to leave politely. Simple as that. And I heard this lady, she was like, what are all these black kids doing here? She's like, I'm scared they might do something to my child. You have been listening to a documentary about the civil rights movement's uh, use of the beach weighed in and the fight for public space at the pool for black people in the 1950s and the 60s, the weigh-ins, which had become demonstrators, demanded equal access to stepping into whites-only waters. And although it's overlooked by most history textbooks, one summer of protests in places like St. Peter, uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and in places like Biloxi, Mississippi, we see that these weigh-ins were led by black doctors, dentists, uh, dentists in the case of St. Augustine, Florida. But in the case of uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, there were two doctors, two uh, very well-known doctors. Uh, like I said, at the top of the program, the doctor who signed my mother's death certificate, uh, Dr. Gilbert Mason, was one of the main leaders, a black physician in Biloxi in 1959 that led the first beach wait-in and that was the way in that they were, he and his family were kicked off the beach. And so his friend, Dr. Felix H. Dunn, who was another doctor that uh, was present upon my delivery into the world. So both doctors were, you know, someone who uh, my mother was a patient of. Uh, but Felix Dunn was the first black doctor in the county of Harrison County in Biloxi, Mississippi in 1959. And so the two of them... Uh, wrote the Board of Supervisors asking what laws, if any, prohibit the use of the black of the beach facilities by black citizens. And the board president's response was that the property owners along the beach owned both the beach and the water from the shore from the shoreline extending out fifteen hundred feet. And of course it took more of a it took another protest uh, where people, black people were beaten, and as a result, white people, were, they beat black people on the beach, and then white people went on a riot throughout the city of Biloxi, burning down black businesses and homes, and uh, fights breaking out all over the black community. It was called Bloody Sunday because of this bloody wait-in on that day, which was May 17th in 1960. And so, as I said, it's Oftentimes, it took doctors in the 1960s, black doctors, to lead the protest because they were in a position to do so. Uh, but after the protest, even those doctors 
as, as well as a lot of the protesters, you know, white citizen councils began to use their leverage to try to hurt them personally. People checking people's protesters' credit histories and getting them fired off their jobs. If burning out their homes and businesses were not enough on Bloody Sundays, they had to go further and engage in personal destruction of these people's lives. But this has been the history. And uh, as I said, the beach wait-ins and the pool fights, you know, continues to this day, as we heard in that documentary. Uh, this was a documentary called The Missing Chapters of the Civil Rights Movement. And as we said, the beach wait-ins were one such chapter. The fight was more than just enjoying a public beach. It was about who gets to control where black bodies can swim and relax and simply exist. And it followed a long history of recreational spaces becoming flashpoints of racial conflict in this country. And we see it continuing to happen as the Internet meme name called Karen. Karen's keep calling uh, the police on black people who are just trying to exist, trying to enjoy barbecue in their own home or at a park or, you know, anything that most of us can take for granted. You're listening to Community Speaks here on WNF Radio, and we're talking about civil disobedience against injustice. And in particular, we're talking about the beach way it is. But civil disobedience here on this President's Day is something that I want to continue to talk about as we look at Russia around the world. You know, the main opposition to Vladimir Putin, his name is Navalny, was killed in prison. And is the widow of Russian Alexei of opposition leader Alexei Navalny was has vowed to continue his fight against the Kremlin. And meanwhile, authorities denied his mother access to a morgue where Navalny's body is believed to be held after his death last week in an Arctic penal colony. And in a video posted on social media today, Navalny's widow accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of killing her husband in the remote prison and alleged that officials refused to hand over the body to her mother-in-law as part of a, a cover-up. And Russian authorities said that the cause of Navalny's death Friday at age 47 is still unknown and the results of any investigation are likely to be questioned abroad and around the world. Many Western leaders have already said that they hold Putin responsible for the death. And... We're going to continue to see whether or not there's going to be fallout from that death. You know, we know that, you know, Russia's elections are not necessarily the the, the most fair of them all. Uh, putting in uh, stuffing ballots, you know, ballot stuffing is pretty common. And so it, may, it ensures that the dictator will maintain his power and nobody is really going to be able to challenge it. But there's always been uprising in Russia, and there's always been opposition, and the Russian opposition lost its brightest star when Alexei Navalny died in prison. And he joins a long list of Kremlin political critics, turncoat spies, and investigative journalists who have been killed in a variety of ways over the last 24 years or so since uh, Vladimir Putin came to power. And most of Russia's opposition is dead, scattered abroad in exile, or in prison, at home, and the remaining opposition groups and political figures have different views about what Russia should become 
and who should lead it. And there isn't even an anti-war candidate on the ballot to give Putin a token challenge in next month's election for his sixth term in office. The question on everybody's mind is what does the Russian opposition do now? And uh, one wonders, is it going to cause enough anger? People are going to finally say enough is enough with all of the with all of the murder of opposition and uh, will this be the end of dissent or will this create a groundswell of dissent in Russia and um, have we seen the last of this story question for the world is you know are we going to is the United States still going to be a viable ally especially given that we have an out of control Vladimir Putin Invading uh, Ukraine, another country unprovoked, just provoked by the fact that Ukraine had a revolution that overthrew the vassal president, vassal to Russia. And as a result, there's been this this blowback, this anger at Ukraine. And so any excuse to to go and violate international norms and just invade unprovoked invade another country and not shoot at military targets but shoot at civilians invading civilian homes eating their food you know and killing people killing children you know shooting out even restaurants and churches and it's is you know just as much a genocide as any place else that people want to talk about uh but we're going to continue to Watch to see what the United States does and will our elections make us even less of an ally if we go backwards to 45 and not maintain the president that we have who understands the world a lot more, who understands, who pays attention to his international briefings from his military generals, who understands that, you know, you know, he's not an unhinged person, regardless of who how many words he might get wrong, how many names he might get wrong. The fact that he's not unhinged and on trial is a plus for us. You know, so we do have one president, but there's another guy on the horizon that could send the world on a roll backwards. So the number to call is 813-239-9663. This is Community Speaks, and I'm ready to take your telephone calls and your comments and your emails. You can email me here at dj at wmnf.org and I'm getting emails from you already and uh, we're going to look forward to getting more of your emails and your telephone calls as we talk about uh, history as well as the present and where we headed for the future if we allow things to continue to spiral out of control and uh, whether or not we're going to have geopolitical chaos are we going to continue to maintain the security of the world because we're engaged, because the United States is engaged? Are we going to have, are we going to go backwards after this election to a president that says Russia can do what it wants? Russia can invade our allies. And part of the reason why Vladimir Putin feels so uneasy about a Ukraine with that he can't control, whose president he cannot control, is the fact that he doesn't, he's using the fact that NATO is coming up against the shores, Russian shores, as Ukraine has wanted to turn towards NATO and turn towards the West, away from the East. So as Ukraine goes West, 
Russia has been grabbing it by the throat and pulling it back east. And we're seeing that these violations of international rights, international law is being embraced by some people who support Putin, including some people right here in this country. And we have a, a main a major party of a candidate who wants to get back in the, to the top office in this country who has been doing everything it has it could to weaken Ukraine's defense, weaken Ukraine's ability to fight off the Russians who have invaded illegally, who have invaded against all international norms. And if we allow that to continue, there could be a lot more chaos on the globe as other countries sees that some of its neighbors need to be invaded. So where are we going? And where have we been? 813-239-9663 is the number to call. And you can write me, WMNF, DJ at WMNF.org. Uh, and I've been gratified to get some emails. One of you have written saying that you appreciate the history lesson that you heard today. And you have an upcoming trip to St. Augustine and will explore the issues more that you heard about in that documentary. And so... I'll be looking forward to hearing what you have to say when you return from St. Augustine. 813-239-9663. Another emailer has written saying that uh, Jews kicked out of pool. Uh, let me see if I can get the information. To a jury has held that the Pakistan Muslim owner of the hotel Shangri-La in Santa Monica, California, discriminated against Jews holding an event at her hotel, and the jury found that a group of 18 young Jewish professionals were kicked out of the pool area of the owners at the owner's direction because of their religion in violation of UNRUH Civil Rights Act. Although not in employment law, this act outlaws discrimination by businesses on the basis of sex, race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, disability, medical condition, marital status, our sexual orientation. I hadn't heard about the Shangri-La Hotel. We'll look more into what happened there as we also see that the anti-Semitism has shown his ugly face in the middle of all of this going backwards on progress on this globe. We're going to go to the telephone lines, talk to Annie in Palmetto to see what you have to say. Thank you, Annie, for calling into Community Speaks. Go ahead. You say what? Good morning. Good morning. Um, hello? Good morning. Yes. Okay. Um, I was a child, very young when all this was going on in the 60s. But my uncle marched. I happen to be white. And my uncle marched with, um, did a lot of these marches. My mom brought me up to be into civil rights. So did my papa. Both mm. of my parents were raised basically racist. Not like the ones that will beat you up type of deal. But, mm. you know. Um, looking down on and, you know, discriminating and that type of thing. Um, and I will be honest with you, my my parents, both sides, got a lot of flack from their parents. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, they weren't behaving properly. <laughs> and uh, my uncle, God bless him, um, he went off and married a Jewish woman. <laughs> that <ran laughs> um, And my papa... Um, end up having a Filipino girlfriend for quite a while. Okay. Um, but yeah, it passed this on. I'm very proud of um, how this passed, um, what it did for me. You know, basically, yeah. we're a bunch of 
hippie rebels, I guess you could say. And I love it. <laughs> and my grandkids, I'm happy to say, are black, white, and red. So okay. how about that? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Talk about diversity, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you learn a lot from one another. Yes, we do. And I embrace, I embrace it. They are beautiful, beautiful kids. Yeah. Thank and you that's how it me. should be. Yeah, it is how it should be. You know, one God, one race, the human race. But in, in a raised consciousness. Amen. Amen. Thanks for what y'all do. Thank you, Annie from Palmetto. Thank you for calling. All right. Have a great day. You too. 813-239-9663. I'm going to go to Lakeland and talk to someone who bears the namesake of my own father, JC. Go ahead, JC. You're on the phone. You're on the line. Go ahead. Hey, thank you for that, and uh, that's a great name. <laughs> and I want to thank uh, Caller from Palmetto. That was beautiful, and thank you for your being open-minded in, in the path that you put your family on. Um, I, I just want to briefly say that I had my ancestry done, background, DNA, and, and also, you know, the other DNA test done, and, and so did my wife, and, and we're both, you know, I'm, I'm African-American, and she's uh, Caucasian, so we, we just want to let people know that guys nobody is pure anything right. <laughs> we are all a mixed breed on this planet together we, we just got to stop this closed-mindedness of you know blood cells are red right <laughs> right plasma, that's right plasma blood cell you get in an accident you can't speak you can't talk you can't discriminate what blood they're going to give you they're going to give you the type of blood that's red that you have in your body uh, so you may have already had a blood transfusion. You may have already had something like that. So you may have already crossbreed and not even know it. <laughs> and uh, be uh, hypocritical in your speak. So we're all pretty much, you know, uh, mixed in of one origin because it is true when you look at your, when your breakdown of your DNA and your ancestry, uh, where the roots come from. And they come all out of Africa. So, <laughs> right. We are all uh, descendants of that race and breed, whether you want to admit it or not. So what you're trying to do and say is that is racist is really contradictory to what you are and make up in your body. Thank you, sir. Thank you, JC, for calling. Remember. 813-239-9663. And our, the emailer who says they're going to take a trip to... to St. Augustine, we'll be sure to circle back. So I'll be looking forward to that. 813-239-9663. You can also write DJ at WNF.org. We're talking about civil disobedience and, uh, you know, to stand up against the discrimination in the waterways, you know, was militated against through the weigh-ins in the 1950s, in the 1960s, you know, and it's just, it was just always... Racism has always been an irrational science. It's, you know, just irrational to think that because you share water with a person of color, that everything is going to be, you know, contaminated in some way. And this guy in St. Augustine had the nerve to come out and put acid in the water. He should have been held. You know, if this had been, if we had been living in, in more rational times, he probably should have been held for human rights violations for doing that. And I'm sure those black people did not get any kind of just compensation for that act. And you saw how the one 
the young lady who was in the pool at the time, how it affected her. So, you know, it's just a shame that we've had this, these kinds of atrocities take place in the name of race inside this country. And it is, it is dangerous to be, you know, listening to a lot of conservatives who never wanted progress, who never wanted change, and use some of the most vile language and engage in some of the most vile behavior that recalls those bad old days of the 1950s and the 1960s. And when they did, they really didn't care what they did and said in public. And we are seeing that kind of boldness come back today, that emboldenedness that we're seeing promulgated by fascists on the right, you know, trying to push their voters into saying some of the most vile things. And you go into a rally, we talk about dissonance, talk about cognitive dissonance on the part of Biden. When you listen to 45 at his rallies, he's no longer making any sense. If at one point he was a, he was just, it was just all shtick and he, it was something to laugh about and watch his rally attendees laugh about. Now he just doesn't make sense. And so we're, we're watching to see this slide backwards and how far will the conservatives really take this and we're seeing after January 6th their embrace of violence political violence is also something that's being led by their dear leaders but we're going to see if we're going to be going backwards on that question in this country further are we going to finally say enough is enough no going backwards we're going to continue to push forward and that is the same question we're seeing in Russia and one emailer has written do you think that there are similarities between Alexei Navalny and Biden's persecution of Donald Trump. Well, you know, you're curious, Greg, you asked that question, but, you know, I, that premise is, is crazy. There's no Biden persecution of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. Donald Trump engaged in things that requires him to be held accountable for. And just because he's running for president doesn't mean he gets to drop the, <laughs> he gets all the charges dropped. You know, you can't just keep propping this guy up. He has to be answerable. He's not above the law. And no matter how you you try to push this this false narrative that President Joe Biden is persecuting Donald Trump, no, Donald Trump is persecuting Donald Trump. And, you know, maybe you want to talk more about that, but I think you have indicated where we're going to be heading in the next few months as we... As we listen to the campaign, as we watch the election campaign go down, we're going we're gonna to see this idea of people doubling down on especially House Republicans' attempt to impeach Biden or members of the Biden cabinet or to try to push this narrative that they are some china ball corrupt family while overlooking the very glaring truths you're seeing from 45, where you've seen this... Uh, attempt to embrace dictatorships around the world, even saying he's going to be a dictator, but also some the the uh, attempt to steal the election, the attempt to seat fake uh, electors, and all of this to keep from uh, having him face justice and answer be answerable to all of this. We want to create false narratives about, you know, that make you feel better. But, you know, no matter how you ask the question, no, I don't think there are similarities. When you think about it, there's no similarity between Putin's persecution and murdering of his political opposition and Donald Trump 
being basically a persecutor of his own, of his own self, his own needs, and his, he's using his own base. And he cares nothing about his base. He cares nothing about the issues. He knows nothing about the world. And he's already shown that in his first term. And the fact that we're even seriously considering him for a second term is also, you know, it, ra- it raises questions about us. You know, who are we to even consider? Or maybe raises questions about that party. Uh, but again, the, the false narratives, disinformation, we're ramping up for that. We're probably going to hear more fake artificial intelligence uh, stuff put out there using Joe Biden's voice, telling, you know, uh, a narrative that the conservatives want him to tell, but he would never say the things that they are are creating in artificial intelligence for him to say. So we've already seen evidence that we're going to see a doubling down of this kind of behavior in this campaign. And uh, hopefully people are going to rise above all of that. 813-239-9663 is the number to call. What do you have to look forward to? And, you know, how have you seen history, the unfolding of history and the civil disobedience that we've had to engage in against injustice? How has that unfolded? Was that a part of your life? 813-239-9663. We're not just talking about the 50s or the 60s. We are seeing people today being mistreated in public spaces, despite a civil rights act, despite the fact that there are protections for public access to public spaces. Uh, we are still seeing an emboldenment of a return to racist behavior in this country. And as if our history has no lessons to be taught. So that's why we go through this especially every February, because it is important that we don't allow history to be forgotten as the wait-ins were largely forgotten to history and, you know, not talked about as much as the sit-ins and as much as the marches, the March on Washington especially. But the beach wait-ins were something that was very noticeable and especially very real to children, especially since that was where you even discriminated against black children, and especially in the pools. So there had to be a uprising. There had to be protest against that kind of injustice in the social spaces, in public spaces in this country. And one wonders if we're going backwards, especially when you hear political narratives that infuses disinformation and trying to push people to behave in ways that are antithetical to freedom and antithetical to political progress. So we're listening out for your telephone calls, and we're looking out for your emails in the last few minutes of today. Up next, of course, is going to, we're going to be getting back to the music. Blaine Whalen stands ready to, to get us back to the music, and you know, you know you love it. I love it. So stay tuned for It's the Music Monday following of course, locally produced news with The Scoop. But right now, this is Community Speaks, talking about history, talking about civil disobedience. And, you know, we've been looking, of course, at the international situation. We're seeing the uh, opposition in Russia ramp up after the death of Alexei Navalny. And we're seeing how they have kept his body 
away from his family. And we also seen this morning that his wife has vowed to keep up the fight. Uh, he was Russia's opposition, Alexei Navalny. And uh, we're seeing that this President Putin is trying to get elected to a sixth term. Uh, I guess you should say selected since they, you know, they're going to stuff the ballots and make certain that Vladimir Putin remains the czar of Russia forever, how long he wants it to be, I guess, until he goes to his death. Uh, but Navalny's death has deprived the Russian opposition of his most well-known and inspiring politician. This guy, you know, I'm, I'm certain that the Russian president was frustrated that this guy was hard to kill. He's been, uh, they've tried to kill Alexei Navalny, they tried to poison him, put him in the hospital, and this guy was still able to crack jokes because he understood that he had uh, widespread support in Russia itself and around the world. And they threw this guy in jail, and they still couldn't break his spirit. He was still full of fire, running his YouTube channel, and really, really towing the line against this fascism that we see in Russia. So... This guy being so hard to kill, they, they finally had to finally take that final shot at him while he was captive in prison, in the Russian prison. And so we're going to see what the fallout will be. You know, is this going to just be a cakewalk, especially when this, uh, this Russian president has unleashed an unfair war on his neighbor, Ukraine, and... He's been sending, he emptied out his prisons and made a lot of those prisoners frontline soldiers and basically put made them fodder for death. And this is how they've been able to, to capture the city that they've captured most recently because the Ukrainians say no matter how many bullets they used to kill those Russians as they were coming, those soldiers as they were coming, there was just more and more coming because these people who... Russia pulled out of jail were the ones being thrown on the front line just to be shot down dead and maintain some kind of Russian uh, ascendancy in that battlefront and forced the Ukrainians to use up all of their their a lot of their ammunition and you have the Russian you have the Republicans in this country pushing the idea that we no longer need to support Ukraine with any guns or ammunition and hopes that, you know, Vladimir Putin will ultimately get the upper hand, I, I guess. these That's what these Republicans want. These MAGA Republicans want Russia to have the upper hand for whatever reason. And there are too many people around the world continuing to support this kind of Russian chaos that we've seen unleashed and including in, in some African countries. And we're also seeing that as a result of Russia's mercenaries on the African continent, there's been major di divisions on that continent. Three African countries have engaged in military coups where juntas have taken over from democracies in Niger, in Mali, in Burkina Faso, and they were undergirded. These juntas, these coup takers, coup plotters, were undergirded by Russian mercenaries. So Russia playing a nefarious role on the continent of Africa. And we're going to continue to see 
that play out is these three African countries have decided to form uh, a, a confederate uh, of between them, the three-country confederate between the three of them. And so I'm certain Russia feels that's another form of uh, Vladimir Putin sees that as some kind of influence that he has on the African continent. So that's not gonna that's not gonna bode well for the future on the African continent. But we are we're watching closely. But that's my time. I'm certain that you know you have more that you wanted to talk about. But I just wanted to raise those issues on this President's Day, as we are dealing with a lot of fallout on the globe, especially on the continent, especially in Russia, as these two countries fight, uh, Ukraine and Russia fight, and uh, the United States wavering on whether or not it's going to be a continued ally for those in the NATO block in Ukraine is is our test to see if we're going to come through and it doesn't look like, you know, as long as we have a Democrat in office it's possible we'll continue to try to find a way to help stem the tide there Uh, but if these Republicans have their way, we're on a roll backwards and that is something that we have to be all concerned about especially when we look at chaos in this country and chaos on the globe we don't want to go backwards especially if you're a person of color as we look at Black History Month we're not going backwards as some people have promised to try to take us backwards in this country and on the globe so that's why we do this this has been Community Speaks and uh, keep it tuned right here we're going to get on back to the music but next week of course we're going to need your help to continue to show your support for WMNF to keep this station strong. But right now, we're going to get on back to the music. But first, we're going to listen to the scoop, locally produced news. And then following that, we're going to get back to the music. Blandy Whalen, it's the Music Monday. Keep it tuned, WMNF Tampa. This is the scoop for Monday. I'm Sean Canan with the WMNF News headlines. A federal judge struck down Florida's current oversight of wetland permitting impacts to imperiled species. It comes after the Environmental Protection Agency gave the state that federal authority in 2020. WMFE's Molly Durig reports the ruling on Thursday marks a win for environmental groups who filed the lawsuit. Environmental plaintiffs celebrated their win against the EPA and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, writing the ruling, quote, restores essential guardrails provided by the Endangered Species Act. That's the law federal agencies violated in 2020 by handing off wetland permitting authority to Florida, according to U.S. District Judge Randolph Moss's ruling. But environmental groups say the ruling only resolves part of their lawsuit with other allegations still outside.